This Quadcast podcast is brought to you by the book Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree. For too long, people of faith have focused more on pointing out where other religions get it wrong. But what if we decided to focus more on all the ways those other religions get it right? This path might end up leading us into deeper understanding, connection, friendship, and peace. This was the idea behind the book that Choir Publishing and Pathios decided to assemble, gathering voices from different religious backgrounds who have learned to listen to those outside their own faith traditions. We hope that the wisdom they share with us here allows you to become more open to the truth and beauty to be found outside your own faith community. Sitting in the Shade of Another Tree, from Choir Publishing and Pathios, available now on Amazon. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Yeah, what's up, Doc? Yes, we're back into our What's Up Docs <laughs> a documentary series about uh, all these crazy conservatives. Um, and so we can't wait to jump back into that. Uh, my name is Keith Giles. I'm one of your many co-hosts. I'm also the author of the Jesus Un series and the recently released, uh, my brand new book, Second Cup with Keith. It's based on the podcast. That's right. Based on the podcast. You all love my little Second Cup with Keith podcast on the side. Um, there's a whole book about it. So uh, go check that out on Amazon and Kindle. Uh, it's really cool. And I'm also joined by my amazing co-host on this podcast. Hey, everybody, just uh, introduce yourselves and say hi. Hey, everyone. This is Katie Valentine. I'm the founder of the Metaphysical Christian Facebook community. So excited to talk about traumatic events that shape us all today. So this is, I think we should title this, um, what, what was the title again? What's up, Doc? It could also be, we watch so you don't have to. If you're too traumatized <laughs> to watch all these documentaries, we will do it for you. <laughs> I love that. I love that. What's up, everybody? This is December Rose, and I am so glad to be back with my Heretic Happy Hour family and all of you. I'm the author of The Church Can Go to Hell and also a author, of course, a spoken word artist, encourager, and I like to call myself an overall uniquely exquisite vibe, and I'm glad to be back with the Ooh. fam. I am also looking forward <laughs> to this next session about What's Up, Doc, and like Katie said, we watching so you don't have to. <laughs> I am so excited you're back, December. My name is Shonda, and you can find me. Uh, you can find my Substack on Joy in Justice, uh, and I am really looking forward to having this conversation because I can never spend too much time talking about what bullshit right wing patriarchal Christianity is. There's never uh, enough. There's always enough content, isn't there? Um, <laughs> Uh, I am sometimes Matt, and I am excited to have the whole the whole band back together. And I have two quick announcements for you before we get rolling in this lovely episode, this trauma-inducing episode. Um, one thing is the Heretic Happy Hour has uh, a book that's coming out in 2024. So um, it's you're you're going to notice that maybe there's not only one podcast that has a book. There's going to be two podcasts that have a book. So we've collected. Uh, I don't have the list in front of me, but some interviews um, from 
the the archives and edited edited them de- edited them. I can never say that word. Can you ever say edited it? Um, them down and created a lovely book for you that's going to be coming out in 2024. And I also have another announcement, which mm. is going to make Katie very happy. Is that I'm bringing back Stone Thoughts, and I don't know if that's going to make any. I know that that's going to make one at least one listener happy. But I don't know if it makes anyone else happy, but I know it makes Katie happy, and that's what it's, that's what we're here for. So awesome. I'm going to give you some quick stone thoughts here. Are you really going to sit here and tell me that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, and he met four dudes named John, Matt, Luke, and Mark? No, I don't buy it. <laughs> well, yes, it's you so dumb. we need this to do a video recording of this sometimes so people <laughs> can see Katie as well as hear her. How's my scholarship, Katie? <laughs> I want a Stone Thoughts book. Could you write that? Could that that will that's actually a good idea. If we get if we get the listeners to fund um, my habit, my my. Uh, what I what I need to create the stone thoughts. There you maybe. go. Do a Kickstarter. Well, Matt, or something. I think I think you're onto something because they they are real like American kind of English sounding uh, names. Like yeah. how the hell no, did that happen? How did that yeah. happen? I think like, they're making like, this up. I can't even I can't even believe like um, that Jason is a biblical name. I have a friend named Jason. He goes, yeah, it's a biblical name. I'm like no, it isn't. There's only Jason <laughs> in the Bible, and that, there is. There's, there's, a, guy is. there's a guy in, in the Book of Acts. And then Jason said. Yeah, no. they, they were at Jason's house or something. I'm like, Jason? Brad there? There's a guy, yeah, Brad, Caleb. Caleb was there, <laughs> Jason, Brad. There's Not also Caleb, Dorcas, so, you know. Dorcas, that's a great one. It, 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 yeah, I'm so glad my mother didn't name me Dorcas. <laughs> I didn't like the name December coming up either, but I've, it's grown on me. But I cannot see myself growing into Dorcas. I just yeah. can't. And welcome to the show, Dorcas. <laughs> Hello, Dorcas. Yeah. If there's a Dorcas out there listening, we love you. Yeah, yeah, we do. It's a beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful. And, and we're very and one sorry. of my favorite figures yes. in the Bible. Our condolences. Yeah, Dorcas was, was a great person. <laughs> yes. yes. We she don't all wonderful. get to choose our names. Speaking of choosing names, when I was uh, when I was in grad school, there was this uh, Japanese student living in the house that I was in. And one of the members of the community converted him to like Anglicanism. And he decided, I cannot remember the dude's name. He decided he was going to change his name to honor his, you know, newfound religious tradition. And he decided he was going to call himself Peter. And I'm like, that's the whitest name you could possibly choose. And he's (laughs) like, it's a Christian name. And I was like, I mean, if you're going to go literal, go with Petros, right? Like the rock, that's where it comes from. And he just looked at me and he's like, that's a stupid name. And that was the end of the conversation. (laughs) Well, look, in defense of Dorcas, I just want to, I looked it up. Because they're, they're very well, this could be the episode where there's a Dorcas listening for the first time. And she's like, these fucking people just railed on my name. <laughs> so I, in, in defense of that name, we're not I just want to say we're not the first. that it's the translation from Greek that means gazelle. And that is for a warm woman who is known for her charitable acts and good works. So Dorcas, if you are listening, thank you for being a warm woman known for your charitable acts and your good works, despite what your parents have decided to name you. Mm. No. Thank you. I didn't know it, but that. that's really cool. 
Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I like the so, meaning of it. At the risk of taking us farther down this rabbit hole, I, I have to say. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know that, that Bon Jovi song, you, live, you Give Love a Bad Name? So our family has a of tradition. Course. When my kids were little, we'd be driving in the car, and that song came on, you know, You Give Love a Bad Name. And we'd all shout out a bad name like, Lester! Or, Peter. <laughs> Right. You give love a bad name, like, you know, but you have to, you have to fill in the blank. Like what's a bad name? Like Lester, Cletus, Festus, you know, things like that. So, <laughs> Cletus is a great name. Why would you Cletus. go after that? Um, so you just wouldn't want to have that name. I wouldn't want to be named Cletus. I mean, I wouldn't want to be named Cletus, but <laughs> yeah. So in, uh, in Ireland, I've pretty much given up being called Katie. Everyone calls me Kathy because Katie is spelled so unusually. It's K-A-T-Y. Yeah. And here, like, no, if they see my name written out, no one calls me the correct name. So I'm, I'm variously known as Katie, Katie with an IE, which I just started spelling it that way for ease. Yeah. <laughs> or Kathy. Yeah. I just respond to all of it. And I'll respond, if you call me any of my sister's names, I'll respond to that too, because I was routinely <laughs> called those names growing up. Right. Yeah. So it's also interesting how where you live changes the way your name, you know, it gets oh, yeah. mangled. So we're like, you know, we in El Paso, we live on the border with Mexico and um, no one here can say Giles. It's they say Giles mm-hmm. because the G is. Oh, so my mom yeah. is Joyce Giles, and anytime she goes to the doctor's office, they call Hoisey Giles, and she'll sit there for like twenty minutes until she figures out, that, oh, that's me. <laughs> wow, wow, it's weird. I had a friend who was half Japanese and half Puerto Rican, and her name was Jennifer. And when she would go back to visit family in Puerto Rico, she just got used to being called Jennifer. Jennifer, yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. But in direct response to your stone thought, I do not know why I never questioned those names because they do not sound anything like what anybody growing up in, it, in, in the it, it, it in the Middle East would be named. I don't know. I do not know an Arabic. I don't know a Middle Eastern person named Matthew, Mark, Matthew. or John. Well, I, I don't know Luke, Nan, not Jason. Nan one. Or Luke, Luke and Mark, to be fair, were Greek. Yeah, that's they were I don't know. A, I don't know any Greek people, but then again, I don't know any Greek people. <laughs> so you just add in, you just add in, you just add an AS to Lucas, Marcos, Lucas, Marcos and then it's, Marcus. yeah. Yes. So, so it's pretty much that. <laughs> that's me. Opolis, make it Greek. That was great. I feel like we, you, we've, I feel like we've concluded my, my on pleasure. this now. Yes, we have, we've done it. Speaking of wonderful names and actually a biblical one. Uh, we have a fantastic heretic of the week. So listen closely. You can tell us which biblical name this matches as you learn all about post-Christianity. It's the heretic of the week. Hello, everyone. I'm Maria Francesca French, and I'm a post-Christian writer and thinker. And I have been called a heretic and unorthodox, but never a liar. Hi, <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hey, Maria. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Um, yeah. So, <clears throat> well, we have been wanting to have you on uh, for a while now. Uh, you you had a, a first book a while back, and then we never got you on, and then your second one's already come out. So uh, we have a lot to talk about. And mm-hmm. the first thing we usually want to ask is, um, Maria, why would anybody want to call you a heretic? <laughs> uh, a lot of reasons, actually, but to just give you one, I guess, uh, one really good one is that the work I do, I characterize with the term post-Christian or post-Christianity, and that means that I am engaging faith 
um, from a perspective of being after Christianity and being post the God in the sky, post the personal savior motif, post the interventionist God. So, but I'm still living in light of Christianity, but I am post it. And I know that sounds a little bit confusing. Um, it's why I wrote a book about it and <laughs> will continue <laughs> to write about it. Um, but that it's it's a it's a curious thing to sort of say and and talk about. So it leads down all sorts of uh, roads. Well, yeah. and my guess is there's quite a journey that's connected to that. I'm assuming you weren't born identifying as a post theist. Um, I wonder Correct. if you'd be willing to share with us how you got from where you started to where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in my first book, like Keith mentioned, I um, I published my first book five months ago, and five months to the date later, I, I published my second one, which I was very excited about. And while they're highly theological and philosophical texts, they are written for a pop culture level so that people with very little theological background uh, or knowledge can really understand them and kind of, you know, take a big bite out of it all. But besides being theological texts, I talk a lot about my life too. I think the story piece mm. is important, not only my story, but everyone's story in in all of this and how how did we get here and what are we doing? So the first chapter of my book, Safer Than the Known Way, that came out in January is very autobiographical and talks a lot about how I came to this place. But for all intents and purposes, to answer your question here, I was actually, no, I wasn't born into a post-theist <laughs> perspective. I was born into an Italian Catholic family in New York. Um, and I had all these experiences as a young Roman Catholic girl, sort of walking into my parish and just really feeling the sense of awe and the sense of something is greater in here than me and what is it and I want to figure it out. And, you know, I was the good church girl. I made all the sacraments. And then when I was a teenager, my mom moved us to a big evangelical church on Long Island. And that's really when I came into sort of the proper you know, textbook understanding of Jesus as savior of your sins and penal substitutionary atonement and evangelism and, you know, everything you could think of, like, in terms of fundamental evangelicalism, I was. And, you know, so everything I felt as a young Catholic girl, I finally got to put a name to it. And that was Jesus. And that was a relationship that I then had with him. Um, and as I moved through high school and then I went to Bible college, I went to seminary and things started to change for me. I started becoming very progressive in my evangelical thinking. And then soon after that, you can only be so progressive before you say this just doesn't hold anymore, just mm. work for my values and my ethos and my ethics and how I want to live my life and what I think about humanity. So I found myself post-evangelical and then I just kept going post a lot of things. And then um, I, I skipped progressive liberal Christianity right by. I wasn't interested in that for a lot of reasons. And I talk about that in Safer Than the Known Way. Um but I, I just found myself in this space of post-God and post-Christian and post-theist. And for me, this idea of post, this prefix on these words, uh, is, it's a very important piece um, because I'm not atheist. I'm post-theist. You know, I'm mm -hmm. not... Um, you know, agnostic. I'm not anything that people think might be after Christianity. I am literally engaging Christianity after Christianity. I'm engaging little G God after big G God. These are important distinctions for me and the way forward for this kind of faith engagement and understanding. Mm. So I think that is the nutshell version I can give you of that. And that was probably already a bit <laughs> too verbose. Yeah, I need. I think I need a little more unpacking. Like, I'm not exactly sure what that means. What does it mean, like little G versus big G? Does that mean you don't believe in God as as a kind of personal as a personality? 
Um, I'm not sure you're going to like my answer, but I'll do my best to answer it well. We're not here to judge. We're not here to judge. Yeah, no, no, I'm curious. Yeah. Well, and I never, I, I don't ever mean to play games with answers. Like, oh, I'm not really going to answer that the way you asked it because it's more that you know. I always want to obviously um, answer these questions with integrity, both you know, for you and for myself as well. Um, but in, in terms of what do I believe or not believe, those are just, that's rhetoric that I don't really use anymore in, um, my theological paradigms, um, because whether or not something empirically exists or not, or literally is or isn't, um, is just not important. Um, for me, it's the theological realities. And so the, rather than the empirical ones and the theological reality that's important to me here is not necessarily the being or the personhood or even the existence of God. Um, there's, there's more at play. There's, you know, from, from a narrative perspective, from a meaning making perspective, from a community perspective, a human flourishing perspective. Um, so I wouldn't say that, you know, I would sign my name on any dotted line in terms of does God exist in the heavens or in the sky or anywhere else as being person, energy, consciousness, any of these things you want to, to say, or, or does God not? Um, it's not a question of being or non-being. It's actually about transcending those conversations that would force us to pick categories, force us to pick sides or, you know, silo in or re-entrench in, in sort of one end or another. So no, I don't talk about God as being, uh, ontologically speaking, uh, anymore. Um, again, that's part of the whole post conversation is going past that because if I just spoke opposite of it, God is non-being, then it's the same fundamental conversation. I'm just on the other side of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so you talked a little bit about, uh, earlier, you know, like, all the things that it's not, right? So it's not, there's um, a, a God who is an interventionist God and it's, you know, all these things, it's not. And 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 I totally agree with that. I mean, I identify with a lot of those things you said. Um, so what are you left with? I mean, what's, what's left over after you say, okay, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. So what is it? <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what is it? So when you talk, right, when you're talking to your audience, when you're writing in your books, um, what are the things that are, are important to you? What are the things that you do think are worth, still worth, you know, hanging on to and discussing? To be fair, the things I discuss are the things that are important for me to be discussing, meaning that it's not important for everyone. Right. Um, so I'm having a conversation that I think other people are wanting to have too, but I'm definitely not an evangelist for this conversation. I'm definitely not saying this is the way it has to be or God does or doesn't. I'm, I'm very much not a person to be telling other people they're doing it wrong or right for that matter. You know, uh -huh. I think everybody has to find their own footing in this space. And, you know, I think religion has always been humanity's mechanism for meaning making, you know, as, as the human race, we've had such an addiction to knowledge and to knowing, you know, that's what, you know, our, our evolution has been all about, you know, to, to know and to want to know and to acquire knowledge and to build life and meaning on top of that knowledge. And so when we're having to sort of, sort of, um, reconceptualize really, what it is we're doing when we're talking about God, what it is we're theologizing when we talk about God. It's it's so tempting to move from, well, this is what we once knew. We don't think it hangs like that quite anymore. So, okay, what are the things we do want to affirm about God and what are the things we do want to know? Um, 
and I just think that it's it's too quick of a jump, like it's too fast of a swing. And so in in the work that I do, I'm really kind of theologically speaking, working out of a radical theology framework. And um, that is really more of, you know, where God is knowable, radical theology says it's unknowable. And where God is nameable, it would be unnameable. And where God has been possible in all these spaces, God is now impossible. And Radical theology would say that's an apophatic way of talking, which is just a fancy word for negative language, negative theology. So you just negate whatever you have. Um, And John Caputo, who's a very popular radical theologian, would say apophatic is apophatic, but it's still not the best we can do. And all language is just wounded language. And, And I love that because language will always be second rate. It will always be our sort of sad (laughs) best attempt to talk about our experiences and our phenomenological experiences of things, especially when it comes to things that we think or believe are divine or or sacred or special. Um, So yeah, language, language is always um, sort of our, our, our best guess at these things. Um, But I think Matthew had a question in the chat. Um, What is the fundamental difference between being post God and no God? Um, I think going back to the comment I just made a minute ago, um, you know, not everybody is at this place. Um, and there are a lot of people that I've had conversations with in the past who just, just want to be done with anything related to Christianity. And they're really happy to have been a Christian and then to move on to like complete atheism or secularism or humanism. And this for me is fine. Like if that person finds nothing else compelling about the story of Jesus, the mission of the New Testament, the narratival arc we see in scripture, um, you know, the history, the comings, the goings of all that we see as, you know, some central themes and missions of Christianity, then atheism is probably a good space for them. And that would be no God. Post-God is we don't see God um, or the constructs of God the way we once did, but we're not quite done with the word God yet. We're not quite done with everything we've housed in this little noun um, and our experiences of all this. And to be honest, our stories, because most people who are on some kind of evolving faith track um, at one point found themselves in probably a fairly conservative environment. And they've, you know, in various ways in their life, have probably steeped their identities in Christianity, in this God that they came to know that they had a personal relationship with, you know, their values, their choices they made for vocation, their choices they made for family, like everything has been centered around this centering story of Christianity. And they don't want to quite be done done with that. They don't want to have to check that entire narrative at the door and say, well, no God. So post God is is sort of the alternative to that. Yeah. So if I'm if, if, I, if I'm tracking with you, I think, and this is great, uh, fascinating stuff. Um, so it seems like, and tell me if I'm wrong. It seems like what you're saying is it's less about being certain and defining your terminology around theology or religion, and more about just the importance of having the conversation um, about what what we could be talking about, right? Without trying to say, no, it is this, or it's not that, you know, uh, in some deterministic way. I mean, the way I, the way I have, have wrestled with, I think some of the same things you're talking about is just to move, move it all kind of into the realm of mystery and say, it's not something we can define, but it doesn't mean I'm done being curious, 
right? Uh, is that is that kind of like what you're saying? Yeah, and I think I think it's all an exercise in the word you use. The word I I use a lot in my work too, and it was certainly a major theme running throughout my first book, Safer Than the Known Way, is curiosity. It yeah. has not been like this weird, disjointed, disconnected thing. You know, curiosity has been that, if you will, deconstruction thread that has you know been woven in and out of my entire faith journey since I was a child and I'm 40 and that curiosity, you know, continues on. So I think it's just a practice, one in curiosity and a practice in humility, really, in just learning how to not hold things so tightly, you know, um, and to hold, hold things very, very loosely, I, I suppose, and learning how to make meaning and find community and find purpose and find life and creativity and production and all of these things outside of, you know, this underlying moral God that we thought at one point held everything, you know, and that starts to crumble. It starts to vaporize. And what are we left with? We're left in what I call cathedral ruins. Um, You know, I use that as a metaphor and we need to sit in those ruins for a while and kind of grieve the loss and, you know, it's kind of this biblical picture of sort of sackcloth and ashes and and sort of cry and be sad and devastated about it and then figure out, okay, like after this death of God, in a sense, what does God look like after God's death? Um, and that's not original. I mean, that's coming out of the death of God theologies that started in the 1960s that I talk a lot about in my work because essentially theology that we do now, we're doing you know, theology post the death of God. And so it's, it's quite, quite different and quite, quite interesting. Um, but yeah, uncertainty would be a huge theme and just Mm -hmm. practicing that. Yeah. So I wonder, um, I imagine this wasn't just an intellectual journey for you. I imagine there were some experiential aspects to it, right? The, the kind of the moments that caused you to start learning about the death of God theology stuff. I mean, what was it that, um, that, yeah. What were the experiences that led you to this uh, point? I know you've, you've definitely done a beautiful job of telling us about um, kind of some of those particular moments of being moved from Catholicism to evangelicalism to beginning to question. um, And, I'm really excited about the the first book and getting to learn more about that journey. I wonder if there were any particular moments, because uh, I suspect there are folks who are listening who are like, oh yeah, I've been wrestling with, or I've been, you know, something came up that really caused me to wonder, is this thing that I've been taught the um, best way of engaging this? I wonder if you'd be willing to share any of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I get asked this question a lot because I think it's a shared experience for a lot of us. You know, we have that one moment that splits it all down the middle and it's that mile marker moment of like something is changing here, something is happening. And it's usually like a moment of devastation, some kind of heartbreak where we felt, okay, we are not being looked after by this God we are supposed to be being looked Mm -hmm. after by. Um, And I think for me, it was just a really slow melt. Um, I had some moments of like, um, this relationship that is supposed to be give and take feels a lot of give on my part. <laughs> you know what I mean? And a lot of take on God's part and you know what's happening. But it was never, I never had this moment of like fist waving in the sky, like I curse you God and you're just, you've, I'm angry and you've not been there for me. And I know that's a lot of people's story and that's totally valid and cool. But for me, it was really more of a slow melt of like, 
okay, I've invested my my whole life in this and this the holes are starting to appear in a lot of it. And I don't want to be emotional about this. And I just think I want to take my time. And for anyone who's been in an evangelical background, like, you know, the exceptionalism, the environment of exceptionalism that is there. And you're always held to a higher standard. And God always has this crazy plan for your life. And there's this powerful calling and anointing and this, that, and the other thing. And there's so much pressure to perform and be. And like, that was me. I was the girl involved in everything. I was the one who loved Jesus the most. I was the one who had my hand up for everything that you could be in and volunteer for. Like I was a performer. And I mean, we're going back like 20 like plus years now. So this wasn't yesterday, but, um, and I think for me, I had to make the decision that I needed to one, stop caring about what people thought about me and pull back from a lot of that and just coast. I wanted to theologically coast. I wanted to spiritually coast. I didn't want to say, oh, this doesn't make sense anymore. So I'm just going to be an atheist or I don't really get what's happening. I'm just going to be agnostic. No, like I, I invested my whole life in this. I'm not just going to pull out super quickly. I'm not going to change my theology on a whim. I just want to be left alone by everything and everyone, including God. Nobody talked to me. Um, and I, I just want to coast and, and see what I think about all of this stuff. And that coasting was years and it involved a divorce and it involved more degrees and it involved living in a new country. And I did what I wanted to do for me (laughs) to move through that coasting period. And after I did, I found that I was re-energized and reinvigorated with some new um, theological imagination for the future. And that's when I started to to build some of this work. And that was, I don't know, it was uh, almost a decade ago, I would Mm -hmm. say. Thanks so much. Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued by the conversation so much because I would identify as the progressive, um, kind of progressive Protestant that you you skipped over. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Finding myself engaged in a lot of the concepts like uncertainty and um, sort of like putting out there, what if this is all, what if, what if this is all just silly, right? Um, and like feeling very comfortable with that as, as an important part of my theological journey. Um, so or like, tell us about your book and are these the kind of ideas that you're engaging in your book? And this is a choir book, correct? Yeah, both are choir. Yeah. Okay. So unshameless plug, choir book, everyone. You yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> tell us, tell, tell us about the book and like what people can expect. Yeah. So um, the the first book that came out in January, Safer Than the Known Way, A Post-Christian Journey, it's really a 30,000 foot look at all this stuff. So the first chapter is very autobiographical because I want people to understand where I was at when I kind of jumped off the cliff and, you know, just gave myself over to, to all of this. Um, and then I go through, you know, um, various theological ideas and philosophical concepts that are helpful for, you know, rebuilding um, when we're trying to engage faith after belief that has sort of killed it and, and killed us and killed our gods in that sense. And so it's really a theological and philosophical text with some story along the way, um, because I just want to get people thinking and start to ask the question of like, okay, well, what's next? You know, if, if people, if it's no longer good enough for most people to just say, okay, I'm a Christian and it looks like this. And if I'm not this, then I guess I'm an atheist. Do you know what I mean? They yeah. don't, they're not always offered other alternatives. Um, and so that's what that first book is offering like a beautiful alternative. And really it's an invitation to step into a totally different kind of journey. And like, it's about unlearning and relearning and it's really trying to build a muscle that has been unused, I think by a lot of people. 
And I make reference to Alice in Wonderland and the Mad Hatter Tea Party a lot because it sounds like that. And it's not just my words. I bring in a lot of thinkers and writers and theologians and philosophers to the table because I essentially wanted to take like 10 years of work and put it in a book. I wanted to write the book I wish I had like 15 years ago for people. Mm. And so that's what I did. And then the second book that just came out was, okay, now that we've done the 30,000 foot level work, what does this look like in all areas and varieties of life? So what does it mean to be a post-Christian when someone you love dies? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. then what? You know, you no longer have these neat afterlife constructs. Like, what does it look like to make meaning after like the meaning maker and the, the author and finisher of your faith is no longer looking like it once did? What does love look like? What does it mean to pursue happiness? What does it look like to engage doctrine like trinity or rapture or hell like how do we approach these things how do we engage high holy holidays like christmas and easter when we're no longer about like the jesus who saved us from our sins like why even engage like because if we're going to say we're post-christian then we're still engaging christianity on a lot of levels and so it's not good enough to say oh well i don't believe in that and it doesn't really matter well no it still matters and we need to ask how and so this is a collection of 41 essays that really delves into into a lot of that yeah and i'm very happy that choir let me put out a book five months after my first (laughs) well we were very excited because actually when we first sat down to talk to you about it you were like I've got basically got the first, the next, you know, like, you know, in a row, like boom, boom, boom. You know, you had them already written and ready to go. Yeah. So that was awesome. Very exciting. Um, and so tell us again, the name of your, your second book, the one that just came out. Yeah. It's called Reconfiguring a Collection of Post-Christian Thoughts and Theologies. And it really does cover, um, and again, it's not exhaustive or conclusive. It's literally like, hey, if you think safer than the known way has you going somewhere, like let's journey together a little bit further. Take the next step. Here's the next book. Yeah. So, no, yeah. And I think that's really important because um, I think a lot of people probably do identify with your journey. And I know they do because I, I know you have people that follow you on Instagram and Facebook and things like that. Um, and people that have bought your book and loved it. So um, I think it's really important, yeah, to help people who do identify with where you're at and, um, and find themselves where they're at and to have a book like reconfiguring that helps them process some of these things. Um, because I think honestly, there just really isn't a lot out there that kind of covers this other kind of thing that you, where where you're at, the space that you're in. I was just talking to someone the other day about this, that, um, there's a whole lot of stuff out there specifically about what we, and we know, and we cover this a lot on Heretic Happy Hour, that whole deconstruction journey, right? For a lot of people. And it looks a certain way for probably most of the people. But I think for a lot of people, it doesn't fit that. It doesn't follow that trajectory. And and what you're doing and what you're talking about and the things you're, you're writing about and reconfiguring, I think kind of provide another perspective for people that don't feel like they fit exactly into that deconstruction journey. Yeah. And and that's kind of what I hoped would be that people would find some sense of theological belonging yeah. uh, with it. And I use theological a lot rather than, rather than spiritual, because I think the, the thinking part of it has been disconnected from a lot of people's experiences, at least, you know, from an evangelical sort of fundamental um, perspective. And so trying to connect those things and, you know, the thoughts that I'm talking about, the stuff that I'm, I'm bringing to people, you can find, but it's really stuck in ivory tower settings. You know, it's, yeah. it's stuck in like academic, you know, it's, 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 it's just somewhere inaccessible to people. And mm-hmm. one of my biggest passions of my work has been to try and connect 
um, the the praxis, you know, with the the academic piece, um, because this stuff is really powerful and it's really transformative, and I really want to get it out there in a way that can actually transform and change people's lives, their communities, you know, the work that they're doing together in these Christian spaces. And so that, that is a really huge passion of mine. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm so glad you wrote both of those books mm-hmm. and um, I know they have helped a lot of people to kind of find their way through it. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. It's, it's been really fun to write the books and um, I've got a couple more in me <laughs> for sure. <laughs> excellent. Um, you know, and I think like even in the, in the reconfiguring and, and my, my first book, Safer Than the Known Way, you know, a really important part to the post-Christian piece is, is Jesus. Um, because we can talk all about God and God's death. Um, but the reason why we are called Christians is because of Christ, right? And so what do we do with the Jesus figure? What do we do with the Jesus story? And yeah. so, you know, a lot of these conversations are like, oh, all right, well, how, how do we engage Jesus, you know, after God after Christianity, post-Christianity, like what is the, what is the Christian distinctive? Like, why are we not just post-religion? You know, there's a reason why, you know, because people ask me sometimes they're like, well, you know, how does this work translate into being post-Islam or, you know, post-Buddhism or, and I'm like, I'm sure it does, but that's not my work. Right. Like I'm post-Christian because I'm, I'm engaging like the thoughts and ideas and the historical trajectory, uh, you know, and, all of these things, um, you know, Jesus uh, wise, <laughs> if you if you will, and so I think that Christian distinctive is is also really important, and I think it's lacking in a lot of spaces um, because what we've done is we've sort of chopped out the pieces about of Scripture and the pieces about Jesus that that we don't like, and so in reconfiguring, I deal with a lot of the problematic stuff, saying, hey, it's not good enough to just be like we don't like this. Or maybe it's actually, you know, it doesn't mean to be a part of our history or it doesn't mean to be a part of our scriptures or, you know, Jesus never actually really said that. No, like we need to take it on its own terms and we need to deal with it. And so how, how do we do this? So um, it's, it's just an ongoing conversation with Christianity after Christianity. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's a way of making our stories and narratives still count in that sense. I, this is super exciting. I know our listeners are going to be um, really excited to read read your work and engage with you. How else can they find you? Um, where where are you? What's the best way to be in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Everything's centralized on my website, mariafrancescafrench.com. So I have a really active Patreon, um, anywhere from, you know, listening and hearing from me weekly to working with me one-on-one. I do what I call theological coaching and help people work through some of this stuff. Um, I have a Pathios column, um, I have a really active Instagram and Facebook. So yeah, you can just head to the website and, and sort of see where I'm up to and where you want to catch me <laughs> if you want to catch me. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much, Maria. This has been so great. Great conversation. Absolutely. Um, Thanks, great you books guys. that you kicked out all in one year. <laughs> so Thank yeah. you. Thanks, yeah, for, thanks for publishing for them. them. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Maria. That was great. Uh, go check out her book. It's really good. And um, it's always good to have you on, Maria. Thank you so much. Yes, and please remember to rate and review our show wherever you get your podcast. Give us five stars if you can. Give us 10 if you don't mind, if you're feeling generous. Uh, but please rate and review our show. It helps our ratings, helps the algorithm, helps everything. So go ahead and give us one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve 10, 11, 12 stars if you don't mind. We appreciate it. <laughs>
Yeah, vote twice if you have to. You know, leave yeah, two twice. Two, there two will be no consequences for that. Yes, that, that's right. On, you can do that on Apple. You can you can submit more than one review. I think. Yes, mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So you can yeah, you can it. update your review. Yeah. I would. Oh, nice. I would, that's a good idea. And I, I will just say that knowing how many people listen to the show based on the analytics, and we have three hundred and twenty-three ratings and reviews on Apple. Right so now. not everyone's yeah. doing that. Not everybody's not everyone's <laughs> talking doing to you. That. Talking to you. You know who you are. You know who you, you, are, know who you yeah. are right now. <laughs> we need to get a nice Trinitarian number, like 333. There you go. There you so go. we need 10 people. That's half of Satan. Oh, oh, Only okay. half Satanic. It feels yeah. like an episode right there. <laughs> yes. Well, speaking of episodes, let's let's get into this one. <laughs> as um, soon as you have rated and reviewed... Yes. Hit unpause and come back to this and conference. Welcome back. Thank you for leaving that five-star <laughs> review. And we now we want to jump into our topic. So we're uh, returning to this uh, What's Up Doc series where we look, we're look. we listening or watching these, um, frankly, a little bit disturbing um, documentaries about uh, conservative Christian churches, megachurches, uh, Christian leaders who uh, have a huge fall from grace. And, and sadly, all the people that get um, kind of you know, crushed in the, in the wake. So, uh, this time we're looking into the Hillsong documentary and, um, man, it's on Hulu. You haven't checked it out. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a four episode documentary on Hulu. It's based on, I think what started off as Vanity Affair wrote an article, um, kind of broke the story open. Um, and yeah, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot in here and it's really, none of it's very good, but, uh, <laughs> the Justin so Bieber part is very good. What are you talking about? Okay, well, maybe that part's good. But um, anyway, yeah, it's about the uh, this Hillsong. If you don't know, I guess right, Hillsong uh, is a mega church in Australia that had I, I, I forgot maybe hundreds of locations right around the world. I think it was thirty at its highest. Okay, it was oh, one hundred fifty thousand really? members, and yeah, like thirty or but, something churches. Yeah. Um, but all those churches, you know, had thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, thousands of people, yeah. and um, it was crazy. So um, mainly built on the back, I think, of popularity was built on the the worship music. Um, interesting, like I used to work for Vineyard Music Group back in the 90s, and we actually recorded a worship album at Hillsong in Australia with, uh, oh, I can't remember her name now. She was the big worship leader at the time. Yeah, we flew out there and recorded a record out there, and because so they they were just kind of wow. getting started back then. Wow! And um and then then they got their own you know recording uh, their own record label and all that stuff and started doing their own original songs. So, so yeah, that, like mix people away, Kevin Bacon style. From yes, uh, I am. Yes, talking I am. about yeah. Mm-hmm. I I do. and we are too now. Yeah, and I know someone. <laughs> uh, I also know someone. I won't. I won't tell you who, but I know someone who. Uh, was approached by the Vanity Fair article people um, because uh, this person used to be on the worship team. If you go to YouTube, you can see videos of this person on stage performing with Hillsong, um, was was right there in the inner circle of all that stuff and was being groomed for that kind of thing, but also saw a whole bunch of abuse and left, came to America. And even though this person lives in America, was terrified of even, even to be anonymous about it because like if there's any hint that they could figure out who I am, they'll come after me. That's how scared mm. this person was. Um, Dang, that's like to, Scientology-like. It is. Kidding. Yeah, it's pretty scary yeah. stuff. 
So anyway, that's uh, that's kind of what we're dealing with. It, it, it looks into some sexual abuse, uh, financial abuse, uh, you know, some shenanigans going on there. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, I don't know where you guys want to start on this whole thing. Let's do some like hot takes of uh, kind of everyone's first impression. Mm. Cause it's four, it's four episodes and Carl Lentz is the person I think most listeners are going to be most familiar with. That was the one I was most familiar with. I had, I, I had seen pictures of the Houston, Brian Houston, uh, the Australia kind of CEO, basic patent yep. pastor. Mm-hmm. And so my first impressions are, oh my gosh, the douchebags get more douchebag as I kept on watching. And yeah. then there's some really lovely moments in the final 20 minutes about people talking about their spiritual journey post Hillsong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when I did, and, I, and then another hot take, I Googled the music because I thought, I don't even know if I know any Hillsong music. Oh, I, I was out of the circuit. I was like, mm, that shout to the Lord song that I actually yeah. still stu, do still like is a Hillsong song. So yeah. that shall not be hummed by me any longer. Mm-hmm. It, it's actually funny because I come from a, a pretty, you know, mainline, moderate to progressive denomination, and I didn't know Hillsong was anything other than a music company until like a couple of years ago. Um, maybe when Same Carl here. Lentz started doing the whole like Black Lives Matter thing. Uh, up until then, I really had no idea they were a church. I just thought they produced music. Um, so the fact that this had had such huge impact all across the world was totally news to me. And probably to most people that I know from church, because when I was preaching at a church up in Sacramento back in August, um, I knew I was going to be mentioning this documentary in my sermon. Um, and awkwardly enough, the song that the music leader sang just before my sermon was a Hillsong uh, composition. So when I got to that part of the sermon, I turned around and said, don't worry, we can't, we're not going to let them take that music back. They may be evil, but you're allowed to still be moved by the music because it was all I could think of to do. uh, So she wouldn't feel super ashamed and called out. Um, We, I think most of us had no idea that it was connected to this, like, intense like assemblies of god-based church which is like the opposite of our church's theology Mm. i think as it relates to the music um I, i i hate to compare this situation to what is going on in israel right now but it just seems like a good example and my prayers out to um, all of Israel and all of Pakistan and all of anyone that's Palestine. With, um, uh, Palestine, sorry, yeah. thank you. Um, anyone that's dealing with being um, terrorized on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 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 reason why I even mentioned that is because you hear a lot in the news lately. Um, Hamas is not Palestine. That the Palestinians mm-hmm. are not Hamas and. Hamas mm-hmm. is not the Palestinians. And why is that something that's relevant? When I'm thinking about music and I'm thinking about worship and I'm thinking about praise and it being a language, a love language that we're singing to our God, I think it is important to separate um, the fact that you can have a personal worship experience with a song from the songwriter and also that the songwriters are not the pastors. So mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's very important yeah. to separate that. Mm-hmm. Even those people that wrote those songs that produced those songs that made that music were also victims too. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. that 
it's very important to separate that out, um, that the authors and the producers and the singers of those songs were not Brian Houston. Yes. And many times were not Carl Lentz. Those, yeah. There's many people and many hands and many creative anointings behind those things. And so I think it's important to separate that out. Um, for me, for the one reason, the one, the first, when I hear what a beautiful name it is or any of those other songs, like you, Shonda, I did not know that Hillsong was a church until Mm -hmm. like, like you, the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. I actually thought it was a worship group, Mm -hmm. a praise and worship group. Mm -hmm. Um, cause that's all I knew about it. And we sung so many of their songs, you know, I, so if somebody's listening, they may not know I pastored for almost 10 years to churches and we sung so many of those songs. So I just want to make a, make sure we, it's a very fine line, but there is a line to be drawn between the people who wrote, produced and sang those songs and the Hillsong institution. There's a line to be drawn there. Now someone could say, well, I'm not going to sing those songs because I don't Mm -hmm. want to support anything they do. That's your right to, as Mm -hmm. it concerns me, any song that speaks to my heart, I reserve the right to sing it. Mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. any kind of judgment at it's all or any kind of yeah like yeah oceans oh my gosh that's a wonderful song i don't the first thing that comes to my mind when i sing what a beautiful name it is or any of those things is not brian he is not even hillsong church right. Right. when right. i'm singing those songs i'm thinking of the lord you know i'm thinking of sure. the person the god that i believe in etc so i just wanted to say that other you know hot takes first thing out was I was ready to be judgmental, but I was disarmed of that very quickly. Hmm. I was ready to have, I already actually watched as a matter, you know, when the teachers tell you, you have a pop quiz, you have a test coming up on Friday. And so you go like uh, hmm. slam study. <laughs> I need to, you know, uh, put all this information in my head so I can remember for the test. That's what I did with this documentary. So I was like, I got, I got to watch this documentary. Let me watch it so I could be informed, so I could speak from a place of knowledge. And but um, while I was watching, I felt myself um, relieving a bit of things that I had went through in my past, and also feeling compassion for. I, I found myself trying to figure out how to separate the men from the ministry, because the men is full of faults, but the ministry reach so many people that you cannot deny the power of, of, of what happened there. You cannot deny that, but you, it's hard to separate that from the man and the men and the system, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So with, you know, yeah, yeah. give somebody else the floor, but <laughs> that's my hot take. Yeah. My, I agree with you on that. I think um, it's good to recognize, to separate the worship leader, the songwriter who maybe wrote that song in good faith you know, wasn't, wasn't an abuser, wasn't somebody that was part of this, um, system that, uh, that was in the habit of abusing people and, um, things like that. It's, it's a really sticky thing though, because like, again, I'm, I'm going to call back to my experience working at Vineyard Music Group is, you know, I know, I knew a lot of the Vineyard worship leaders and they were all fantastic, just amazing people, beautiful people. Um, and I know they all, were writing those songs, not to make money, not to get famous, but because they loved, you know, writing songs and they, they loved, um, worshiping and all that stuff. So, um, I totally agree with that. The problem I think is that, um, it Hillsong kind of is a business and, and there are royalties that are paid and those royalties 
get paid to the songwriter. I mean, I, I think they do. I know with Vineyard they were they they were paid to the songwriter, but you know, a percentage of that also goes to the organization. And like you know, so if it's like you're listening to them in your car, sure. But if you're like if you have a church and your church is doing those songs and you're reporting to those songs to CCLI every month, you are paying royalties to them, and that money is going to Hillsong. It will go to the church. Um, and so that's another sticky part of it too. Like, you know, how do you, and maybe it's just a personal thing. People have to decide for themselves, like how they want to draw that line, how they see that. Um, and maybe watching this documentary, if you haven't watched it, will will help you decide. <laughs> I don't know. So I bet we'll come back to the music cause it's hard not to, but, uh, there was something that struck me as a really interesting part of the documentary for anybody who's listening and might want to watch it or is like December said, grateful that they don't have to watch it um, because we did. There was this interesting kind of sub story going on in it. Uh, the van- you know, I like to talk about like the hidden heroes in these stories and the vanity fair um, reporter was asked to write a story about Carl Lentz because he was this big, popular, had gained a lot of attention, uh, particularly for the BLM stuff and also for, you know, being the one who had baptized Justin Bieber and kind of built mm-hmm. up this celebrity following. Uh, and he was supposed to write an article about how this guy had fallen from grace because he had an affair. And the reporter was like, this feels really boring. Uh, it's kind of like the same old, same old. And then he's like, wait a second, as I dig around, it turns out there are other people who did worse things that didn't get in trouble, whereas Carl Mm. Lentz got flat out fired. I wonder what's going on beneath the surface. I bet there's worse stuff going on than this kind of -of run-of-the-mill church scandal. Um, And I'm really impressed that that journalist had put those pieces together and did the investigative uh, research that was Mm -hmm. needed to dig up the fact that there were monstrous things being hidden in the life of that denomination. So I just wanted to kind of acknowledge, um, I kind of wanted to acknowledge like good journalism going on. in. was the Vanity Fair article? Hmm? Yeah. What What year? Oh, what year was it? Ah, 2020, 2021. It was recently. And and this documentary goes up through like March or April, 2023. Mm -hmm. So everyone knows it's very contemporary to the time we're recording this. And things have happened since the documentary came out that we will illuminate as we continue (laughs) on in our discussion. That's right. There's there are updates (laughs) to the things that happened there. Yeah. (laughs) One of the things you said, Shonda, that you said there was, the, the journalists did good investigative journalism, right? They were able mm-hmm. to uncover a lot of things. And in one of the um, episodes that I was watching, something was said that really uh, stuck out to me. And he said uh, that they had decided not to cover up what one of them had done. I don't know if this was the Carl or the other pastor mm-hmm. from the Yes, church. I remember. Yes, I remember. This. Um, I think it was the pastor from the other church. Um that they also dismissed, but not to cover up, but not to expose. And I know, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the one from like Houston. Yeah, it was yeah, Brian it was Houston. Houston. Yeah, it was the Zoom. Was call it Brian Houston or the other? He said that about one of the past. It was another past. Was they were talking about Brian Houston. Houston. They were talking. So it was a Zoom call that the in, sort of interim pastor guy, the guy with the beanie and the long hair, um, mm-hmm. he was running the Zoom call with some board members or something, and he was, or leadership team. And someone secretly recorded it 
and um, and he was saying he was basically filling them in on these uh, scandals that Brian Houston had, and the the one with the woman in the hotel room, and he was you know he paid that personally. He didn't want the church to, ba- to bear oh, that burden. Right. And then the other woman that was another one, and he also you know he also took that care of that personally. So the church like, but really. Why, what, why did he really not want the church to have to pay that? Right. Cause that would be on the record. Um, but anyway, but then yes, Although he I said think December that is actually talking about a different. No, I think it is. No, it's the same one because at the end of it, he says he's on the same zoom call. And then he tells them we have decided, um, not to, ex- um, not to cover up, but just not to disclose or not to expose. And as if and- like, I'm sorry, the definition of, of covering up is not exposing like, to me, that's there bullshit. Was, there was also a pastor in Texas that they let yes. go because he had had an affair. Oh, it's okay. He, he had um, a rape but, accusation. Rape oh accusation. That's right. It was worse than an affair. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But he got personal congratulations from Brian Houston. And, oh, that's... And he yeah. got to make his own announcement about why he was leaving. Is that the one you were talking about, December? Yeah. 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 <laughs> you. Yes, absolutely. And I thought when I heard that, I thought, you know, he probably thought he was saying something there. Yeah. Uh, and he was saying <laughs> We're not something. covering it up. Right. Not exposed. Not, not, we made the decision not to cover up and not to expose. And I thought, well, not to expose it is to cover up. Or is it? I don't know. Or are you just going to let it? But I think so. What do you think? I don't think there's a gray area there, personally. Right. I don't see a fine line. If yeah, deciding deciding right. not to tell people, that's covering it up. Yeah, if someone comes up to us and directly says, yes. it's such and on such a such date, we won't deny it. Yeah, it's a cover mm-hmm. up. Yeah, that's totally it's, it's gross. Yeah, and I thought, you know, that's how it we're in. The thing is, I think uh, most um, churches take that position, at least the ones that become so big that um, I remember I was on a, I don't know who was interviewing me. It might have been you, Keith. And I was saying that the churches, when they become a certain size, they start, they, they're just, it's just an institution. Mm-hmm. It's not, and they act like any other institution. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. They act mm-hmm. like the police. They act like the government. They act mm-hmm. like the corporation. They act like any other institution. Yeah. And it's the same thing where it's, we're not going to, you know, make an announcement about it. Um, but we're also not going to fix the issue because if we were, if we were, uh, if we were intentional about fixing it, we would, we would expose it. You know Mm -hmm. why we would expose it? We would expose it so that if there's anyone else out there that has something that they need us, we would to give, to empower any other victims to speak up. Yes. And also to out any other ones that might be hiding among us. We would expose it if we were intentional about fixing the issue. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's turn maybe, uh, if this feels right, to the key players, because there's really two key players that the documentary is about, and then one who is deceased, who is um, the behind all of this. Mm-hmm. So the first is Carl Lentz, who was the uh, Hillsong pastor in New York City, you know, huge congregation, 12,000 people, I think, in, I guess in Manhattan. Um, somewhere in New York City. And he was accused of and admitted to an affair. The woman, um, and it was like their babysitter or something super stereotypical. I mean, you can't get much more of a stereotype. But the woman alleges um, more than an affair that there was Mm -hmm. non-consensual sex as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Carl Lentz has denied that and he stepped down from his position. His mentor was Brian Houston over in Australia. If you don't know who this guy is, you do. Because he's the guy with the Australian <laughs> accent who said how glad he was to pray with Trump. Yep. 
Yeah. Right when Trump was being like yeah. very the, it, early on, like right after he was elected, early early years of the office, yeah. 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. So th- that's who that guy is, and he looks like a slick, oily. Yeah, person. Mm-hmm. I'm not, and I, I don't say that because of his looks. He he just looks like his whole his demeanor, demeanor, his behavior, yeah, that the vibe. Yeah, yeah. Like everything, the way he talks, like everything. Carl, so, I got more yeah. the feeling of a um, youth pastor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> youth pastor vibe. Yes, yes. V neck shirt with the tight in the hair. Yes, he's all cool. of that, and like cool. he's never quite a little Arrested Development there with that treasure trail for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But the, the Hillsong system is a very internal system. So yeah. you, you find a Hillsong church, you go to their college, you never get the formal education, you never get solid theological mm-hmm. training, you certainly never get a boundaries training um, that would, <laughs> would benefit all of them um, or, or sexual boundaries or anything like that. And so it's all an internal insular system. Um, and I, I was reading that as a huge contributor to the problems. So Brian Houston has since had, I think, 13 allegations. Yeah. Against, uh, several less allegations against him and a lot of women who were paid off. A lot of yeah. women who were paid yeah. off. Yeah. And big sums of money. And then it's come, uh, it's come out that his father was a serial fucking predator yep. of children Just in Australia. Predator, yeah. He would go to his houses and then abuse yeah. their children. So those stories are just heartbreaking and just lots of props to the victims who are able to tell their story. Yeah. Because I, I I don't think I would be able to tell that on a Hulu documentary. That's right. right. And so yeah. I was very moved by their courage and yeah. I, I know that's not easy and uh, they're continuing to suffer. And so that, that, that jackass died in 2004 and um, had a convenient case of dementia. Uh-huh. Right. Well, mm. is, but did he though? Because I felt like the doctor sort of was saying that he had dementia almost as a way of like excusing some of this. Yeah, so. I think so. And the doctor seemed mm-hmm. to regret his diagnosis there. Right. Um, so well, that's kind of where we are. So, yeah. so Brian and Carl have both either stepped down or, or been made to resign from their from their various positions and posts. Hillsong is going, uh, still continuing, but the scandal did way lower their numbers. In the middle of all that, there was a ton of financial abuse. And uh, I don't, you know, I, oh, I know, yeah. I think I know where I'm down on a lot of this, but I know it's a documentary and is, you know, skewed to some perspectives. Although the guy who made the documentary, I, I couldn't tell if he made the documentary or inspired it. The whistleblower, yeah, like only really public in the past year. He was, mm-hmm. um, he was too scared to become public. Yes, he was anonymous for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the other Imagine thing, too, being afraid of a church. Yeah. Yes. And there was a lot of fear about, like I said, my friend was terrified even after this person left the church, lived in another country and Mm. was still terrified to give an anonymous statement of the things and the abuse that she suffered. Because if there was was any chance they would go, oh, we would read it and they would read it and figure out who it was that they would come after her. And I think it's also because um, their parents were also still part of it. So back in Australia. So there was also the... Yeah, the chance that they could suffer some abuse as well. Um, yeah. The thing that, that was a good summary, Katie. And I think the other thing too, uh, in addition to the, you know, the the pedophilia uh, from the founder um, Brian Houston, the son, his uh, many indiscretions and payoffs, um, and and the, all the financial garbage, uh, the stuff with Carl Lenz in New York, um, and his affairs, as well as the alleged. Sexual abuse uh, again. He he contests that, but the, you know the woman says it was not consensual and it was abuse. Um, 
I mean, on that sense, I would say that to me, that's similar to, I hate to bring this up, but Bruxy Cavey, right? Bruxy Cavey um, was a, also um, uh, a pastor, uh, someone everyone loved and respected. At least I, I thought the guy was a good guy. I mean, it turns out that he, you know, he says, oh, I, I had an affair. But when they talk to the women, they're like, no, it wasn't an affair. You were the pastor of this mega church. I was a young person. You you abused your power over me to coerce me into, you know, these sexual acts. To me, it feels that same way with Carl. Like, I could see at least that that's possible, that he was the pastor and he was someone in authority in the church. And, um, you know, and, and so I think that that's possible that that's what's going on there. Um, anyway, but in addition to all of that garbage... There's also this layer uh, in the documentary where they interview people that went to the college. Yes, they mm-hmm. had a college in mm-hmm. addition to a megachurch, in addition to owning a massive worship publishing company that was worldwide, in addition to having churches all over the planet. They also had a college. And um, the process that they put these students through was um, really scary and really abusive. Like, you know, yes. students coming in and wanted to be in any kind of leadership, or, you know, were literally sat in a chair in the middle of the room with a bunch of people looking down on them. They were grilled and asked all kinds of very personal questions. Have you masturbated in the last year? Have you had a sexual encounter in the last year with someone? Again, these are people that aren't married, you know. Um, I would have failed this test, by the way. Right. Have you looked at pornography? Would in you the have last- failed or would you have really won? <laughs> right. And so, so number one, that's very inappropriate to ask students at your college who just want to go to your college, right? Or be on some stupid worship team. Um, but then if, if when when these some of these students were honest, because again, they wanted to be transparent because that was, oh, we value transparency. They trusted mm-hmm, that their mm-hmm. honesty and transparency would be protected. It was not to the to the degree where if they answered yes to any of those questions, their name tag had a little red dot. That everyone knew meant, yes, it was like a giant scarlet letter. Hey, everybody, that person is whacking off, watching pornography and having promiscuous sex. You know, watch out for them or or be their friend. (laughs) I would have asked for red dots, yes. I'm only hanging out with the red dot people. Um, I don't know who in the world thought, you got to dissect that. Who in the world thought that that was a good idea? Yeah, it's horrible. I don't understand how you can read um, the scriptures and see the mm-hmm. life of Jesus in the scriptures and then come to the conclusion that that is something that you should do. Mm-hmm. You should go teach the boundary training in December. Huh? Yeah. You should go teach the boundary training. Yeah, yes. no joke. Oh, okay. They needed that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wait, I don't understand that. Uh-oh. How did you even arrive there? Let's let's yeah. mark you for the world to see. Yeah, it's horrible. Meanwhile, the folks doing the markings, their whole name tag should be full of red dots. <laughs> That's yeah. Right. It should just be red dots only. <laughs> with, yeah. No room for the name. Just red dots. Red dots just only. Dots. Club from Hillsong. Yeah. So um, I'll chime in here. Um, Wait, who is this? Who? From, Sometimes. This is your producer. Is oh. <laughs> I'm going to mute all y'all so I can talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> You get a it, dot, and you get a dot. And you get a dot, and everyone gets a dot. <laughs> and there's red dots um, in all the left corners of our screen. Anyway, go ahead. Oh, it's well, unfortunately, before I get to my thought, hypocrisy, calling out hypocrisy is meaningless anymore, right? Yeah. Um, when, when people stop caring about that, then it becomes no use. Um, it's really insidious the way 
churches. And I just noticed the same thing um, for the IHOP, not the pancakes, but the International House of Prayer, the Mike Bickle guy who just yes, had yeah. all of his allegations come out. And then I read the church's response on social media. And the way they always phrase it mm-hmm. is the same way they phrase people who are, quote unquote, struggling with LGBTQ. Yes. it's yes. all and, and the way they equate like sexual abuse with immorality quote unquote yes, mm-hmm. yes. And, and it's like it's like you're um it's like they take that 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 passage wait wait did you say sexual abuse with immorality or sexual orientation well they'll um they'll they'll just equivocate all of it yeah. They'll, anytime one of their leaders comes out as an abusive person, oh, they'll say they'll say this person is has has they'll call they they won't really they're call always call sin. it by name. They're struggling with sin or they're struggling with their immorality yeah. or their sexual immorality. Yeah, yeah. It's the same. It's the same way they describe gay people, or it's the same way they describe someone who has an affair. It's all of it becomes, it all of it becomes so. It's like if they've literalized and I guess bastardized the passage about like all sin is equal in the eyes of God or something uh-huh. like they've taken that to then now it just, it just, well, if you're having an affair, if you're gay, if you're bi, if you're trans, if you're, if you're an abusive person, we're all just going to call it sexual immorality. And I hate the way churches, churches phrase that. Mm-hmm. It's like, they won't, they won't even go so far. And I know some churches come out and denounce it. And I'm not saying it's all churches, but too many of them will just kind of whitewash all of it and put it all under the same umbrella and as a person who's LGBTQ, it, it's gross because they would describe me in the same way they would yeah. describe Mike Bickle. We're all oh, just yeah. struggling with our sexual yeah. immorality. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, mm. well, fuck you. Even in your yeah. even in your belief system, you can't really believe that being gay is the same as, you know, being Raped a somebody. systemic ab- yes. uh, abuser for 15, 20, 30 years. Come on. The fuck That's out right. Of here. That's right. a great point. Then that is right. that's. Yeah. That's a great point. There's also there was you reminded me of something. There was a there was one of the you know as they were talking about in the documentary, interviewing some of these students from the college. One of the ones that one that broke my heart was the one of there was a guy, and he talked about how he was a drummer and he it was his dream to be a drummer on this worship team, yeah. and he was yes. set up. He was gonna go to Indonesia or something on this tour. Yeah. They were gonna this worship band was gonna tour Indonesia and play you know. And he was he was he had auditioned. He was gonna make it. He was in. And then they came to him and told him, uh, one of the leaders came to him and, and this is, this is so ridiculous to me. It's heartbreaking, but they, someone crazy. came to him and said, one of the leaders said, oh, Hey, he knew about something that he had shared, not with the leadership, but I guess he shared this with a friend or something and it kind of got reported and it made its way up to the leadership. And what had happened was they said, oh, you have had a, a homo, have you had a homosexual mm-hmm. uh, encounter in your past? And he said, yeah. no, but what it was, was when he was a young boy. He was sexually abused. He was was molested by by a man. And because as a child, uh, an adult did this to him, he was disqualified and he could not. They told him, you will never play on any worship band ever. You're not going on this tour. You're not playing on any worship team. And oh my gosh, man. He was punished for being a victim. As mm-hmm. an adult, and furthermore, the mindset behind telling yeah. him that he had a homosexual—let's right. tell him that it was his fault. That he, right? Yeah, yeah. As a kid, it was your fault. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, it was horrible. And I think that guy at the end says, and in fact, several of them at the very end will say, like, "Oh, and now I'm happy. I'm an atheist." Like, many of them just decided I'm out. I just—they just totally checked out of everything. To me, that was one of the most—that's most one of the most insidious parts of this level of abuse because the abuse is deep seated and it's not only from one person. 
Yeah. It's yeah. institutional, it's yeah. personal, it's community. And you know, one of the first things you learn in like kind of pastor 101 is that mm. for some people you represent God. Yes. And that yeah, you're going to you were going to you're going to screw it up sometimes because you're human. But that's why your personal integrity um, in interpersonal relationships has to be held to the highest standard. And so yeah. what happened for some of these people is that they their relationships with their pastoral leadership became conflated with their relationship with the divine. Now, not for everyone. Yeah. Some of the, you know, some of the people in that and after Locke said, my spirituality is now very private. Um, I think one had become pagan. Uh, some people, you know, they, they have a variety of ways to express their spirituality and be, becoming atheist is certainly a valid option. Mm -hmm. But my heart just broke for the brokenness in mm -hmm. the world at this kind of abuse because it's um, the, the layers of which we experience it are at every single level of our core being. Yeah. And that that's what that's one of the things that really broke my heart that someone's relationship or experience or however they want to put that with the divine becomes so disrupted. Yeah. That that reminds me too of um something on the final episode that Carl's wife said. Um she was talking about how she was angry at God and the mm -hmm. way the way she said it she said, you know, we had this wonderful story Oh, this beautiful thing that was going on in our life. And then she says, and God changed the story. And I'm like, I immediately, I literally, I yelled at the screen when she said that. No, God did not change the story. Your fucking husband did, right? Your husband changed your story of your family because he decided to go ahead and, you know, have these affairs. And, and so it's like God, God didn't, it's not like God woke up and said, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to fuck up this family. I'm, I'm going to change their story. no. God didn't do that. Yes. Your husband did that. And it's like to to have that confusion of this bad thing happened, therefore God did it or God allowed it. That stuff pisses me off. I'm just like, man, don't do that. Don't don't apply blame to God for things that people have done that are it's just look, blame them. They screwed up. They messed it up. And 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 I will say on the positive side, Carl at least does own that. He does there's a there's a moment where he says, yeah, um, I, I screwed up. I did that. And I have to suffer the consequences to that. And I think he says something like, all I can do is apologize and change. Um, and so you hope he is, you know, I, I hope that that's happening. I also hope for healing for the people that have been hurt in the process. Coming from, um, uh, I, for those who don't know, <laughs> I got married earlier this year. And, um, for those who further don't know, I, this is my third marriage. I'm a very young, I'm a young woman. I consider myself to be a young woman, 42. Um, but I was married right out of high school to a pastor. The worst five years of my whole existence on the planet. Mm. And then I was married to a businessman for about eight years, who is the father of my children. And now we consider ourselves friends and we do well co-parenting. But during the marriage, I experienced infidelity for eight years. And um, so my, her, her, her uh, I, I see her differently so her trying to say God changed my life didn't it didn't piss me off. It was more like I feel empathetic toward her because we try to rationalize our pain in a mm. way that we can uh where we can figure out how to manage and maybe consume it in a way that doesn't kill us. Mm. And so I, I I I think that that's more of her trying to rationalize um uh, the pain that she dealt with. 
And we mm-hmm. try to, you know, like when someone dies from cancer or something, you hear people say God needed them more than we did and all those right. other things that people say that you're like, God didn't have nothing to do with that. That's just life. That's the fickle nature of the human body. You know, that's what sickness does. Uh, yeah. But for some people, it's comforting. It's more comforting for them to be able to say there's a bigger plan. There's a bigger way. And so it's, I don't believe that God had anything to do. Um, with him deciding to go stick his thing in some other woman. That's what he did because that's who he, I won't say that's who he is because I'm not going to judge him. That's who he was at the time Yes, Yes. when he did that. I'm not his judge. Anybody could be restored. We can't claim to believe in Christ and the God of the Bible. And then someone makes, does something and we send them to hell for it forever. So I'm not going to judge him, but that's who he was at the time. And I would say that, most likely her perspective comes from a place of pain and we try to rationalize that pain in a way that we could tolerate it. So I have empathy toward her. Um, But one thing I wanted to do with me, when you talked about the drummer and the fact that he, the church should be a place where you can come and, and, and start a journey toward healing. The church should be a place where you should be able to come and, um, find yourself in God, if that's a thing. And the fact that they found out that he was a victim and then made him a victim over again yeah. um, by denying him the opportunity to worship in using his gift is deplorable. And also I'm, I'm reminded of uh, uh, um, one of the other testimonies in this documentary of the mother. I can't remember her name, but it's the black mother and the daughter. Oh yeah. And she was, yes. Yeah. And she was talking about how, they were having all this money coming in and people were needing, they had all these volunteers and people were needing help with bills and people were getting evicted. And she came to the church to try to get the people some help. And they had told her something about it was illegal to give money and this and that to the people or something. And she was like, that hurt her heart because they have literally hundreds of thousands and millions Millions. of dollars coming in. And you're, building these buildings and you're on international TV and you ride around in these expensive cars and you, and this is the gripe and complaint that I think a lot of the world has with the church in general, not just Hillsong, but all of them. Where is that getting back to the people? How is it getting back to the people? Not only is it church and not all of them. I want to park right here and give a disclosure right quick. There are some amazing ministries out here churches that are doing kingdom work churches that are not victimizing people hurting people killing people raping people molesting people there are amazing churches out here that are god's hands and feet in the earth let me just say that but for the ones that are not (laughs) (laughs) hold on yeah (laughs) yes for the ones that are not this is for those this is for those and i hate I'm 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 a pastor that walked out of the pulpit and I decided I'd never want to pastor again, but I still pastor in some capacities for things that I do. I've, I have a speaking engagement coming up next week. The thing is, I hate that someone said earlier, and I don't know if that was Katie or Keith, that people tend to conflate their spiritual leaders with God himself or herself yeah. or however you see God or perceive God. And that's unfortunate because when that person does what humans do, because I saw Carlins as a human, what happens is we make them superhuman. There are no yeah. superhumans. That's right. There are just humans. And humans do what they do, like cheat on their wives and things mm-hmm. like that. And when you make those humans God, and that human does something that is human, 
then you fall out with God. And mm-hmm. I, I find that to be so unfortunate for me, but it, it might be a healing thing for someone else who feels like they got free from um, their belief in God. And for that, I have no judgment. I just walk the path of peace that makes the most sense to you. One of the stories that I found most moving was, you know, a lot of folks didn't realize how conservative the theology of um, of Hillsong was. And there was a music minister who was gay. He was yeah. on yeah. Survivor with his partner. Uh, he was so proud to say he was from that church. He was part of the leadership of that church. It was a church that loved all people. And when he got back, he found out that that was not true. Um, Mm. that Hillsong, uh, that I think it was Brian Houston had said, nope, that's not going to stand. Um, because AOG, uh, Assemblies of God doesn't tolerate, um, uh, the beautiful, uh, gifts that queer folks have to contribute to the church. So what was really lovely is he ends up finding an LGBTQ affirming church that he's now really active in. I also came across a story that that said he's now engaged to uh, to his boyfriend that he was on Survivor with. Yes. I know. So happy ending. Um, You know, I was thinking (laughs) about the fact that um, the, the previous two documentaries we talked about were, um, were, much more about politics, right? The one about Jerry Falwell, the one about uh, mm-hmm. the Duggars really had deep political agendas yeah. uh, running through them. And at first I thought this one didn't. And then I found myself thinking, advocating for, you know, yeah. uh, the like ultimate power and lack of accountability of the white men running things Um really is incredibly political and it's therefore not surprising that Brian Houston would be really proud to pray for uh, Donald Trump when he got elected. Mm-hmm. Right. The other thing I found myself thinking was one of our heretics of the week, Tahina Rash often says whiteness is a hell of a drug. Uh, <laughs> and I was really struck by, you know, there's, there's a beautiful arc of Carl Lentz uh, confronting what he's done wrong and seeking to make it right. Um, and simultaneously, when people talk to him about spiritual abuse and the fact that even if that relationship with um, with Leona Kimes um, had been consensual, that the po- the power dynamics in it made made it so that it was never actually going to be right. a consensual relationship. Like Katie right. keeps saying, absolutely. they really needed some healthy boundaries training. December, you right. absolutely should have given it to them. Uh, you absolutely <laughs> should. Like you would tell it like it is. So I was. I found myself thinking about Carl when he was told that could not hear it, couldn't hear mm. that he had power over her. That's right. Yeah, couldn't yeah, hear yes. that pastors have a power differential and simul and and similarly he got a lot of attention on national news for proudly proclaiming that black lives matter uh he mm-hmm. got tons of notice i people like dozens of people shared his video clips with me when it happened while not having black people in his leadership and that's the thing is when they met with him um. and they said so listen you're getting a lot of credit for something that isn't yours in the making. And simultaneously, we don't have leadership. We're not shaping things. And when he got asked about that later on, he was like, I can only do what I can do. It was the thing that we did best. I don't know what their problem is. 
Um, and I found myself thinking, it turns out this documentary was actually very political because it really also, in some very subtle ways, talks about the drug that is uh, whiteness, the drug that is patriarchy, uh, the drug that is Christian supremacy. Yes. Yeah, and um, and that, there were so there were like there's three or four really powerful black women in this documentary yeah. who talk about their experience, their gifts, and how they realize you know after a few years that they were never going to be promoted, they were never going to be paid. Yeah. And that was true of a lot of people, um, yeah. including the the white drummer that we talked about, the the male drummer. Um, and piggybacking on that, there's a lot of subtle and not so subtle gender messages. Mm-hmm. that come mm-hmm. through in Hillsong. Uh, so women tend to minister to women. Whenever Brian Houston's wife gets on stage, I just cringed because she talked about her husband's solid reputation. I was like, what What TV show are you watching here of, of your life? Uh, right. But also there's messages about being good wives and mothers. And yeah. All of that mm-hmm. kind of bullshit. So that the patriarchy and racism is... Yeah. Um, there's a lack of transparency there. And that's what Shonda, when you were talking, that's the word that kind of kept on coming up for me. Nothing is transparent in this church. Yeah. Nothing. Finances are not transparent. Leadership is not transparent. Mm -hmm. Promotion is not transparent. Sexual values are are actually not transparent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They say that they are, but they're not. And so that lack of transparency in this mega structure strikes me as maybe not the core of the problem. The core of the problem is, you know, racist patriarchy. But it factors into it. Oh, transparency. And so December, yeah. yeah. And so December, when you were talking about churches that really do this well, yeah, their budgets are usually online. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's a form of transparency mm-hmm. where you can see how right. much of the money is going to this, that, or the other. Yeah. You know, where because yes. a, a budget will speak about values. Yes. Yep. I agree. And choices. Yeah. yeah. And what's so ironic too uh, is that uh, he now, I, as I understand it, is working with or is in ministry with a predominantly African-American church. Oh, is it? So I didn't I, see that. That's, wow. that's ironic. Uh, transformation let's church. Talk about, let's talk about what happened to Carl after this. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about Carl. So he resigned, uh, resigned, and then he he's revealed. So December, before we started recording, you commented that Carl is actually gives interviews for the documentary. The only yes, kind of major leadership from Hillsong that gives, that gives interviews. And it's really actually... Um, Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so he talks about that after he resigned, he began to come to terms with his own sexual abuse. That he yes. was molested as a young yes, person. That's right. And yeah. that he went to rehab for this and to untangle the deep-seated impact that sexual abuse can have on the way he perceived sex, the way he perceived leadership, the way he perceived God. Um, so he did, it seems like he received help for that. That to me seemed fairly genuine, although not mm-hmm. fully processed. Mm-hmm. To me personally, just as a witness. Well, he, and he then he was working job. for him. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, he he also makes a comment about uh, how different rehab was from the way the church would have handled mm-hmm. um, his oh, problems. Yeah. That's right. right? Yeah. He says, you know, in church, they would have just said, oh, let's just pray and ask Jesus. You know, and he was like, yeah, there are things that prayer and Jesus will not solve. Right. You really need to go to therapy. You really need to be, you know, right. deal with your junk that's right. and and process this stuff. And I thought that was really good. That That's one of the things he said that gave me some hope that, okay, this guy might make yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And and he talked about how, you know, he could not have had lust when he was a little kid and was oh, molesting. Lust. Was not a, about lust. Yeah, yeah, lust. And and that's one of the things in one of the text messages that was shared from Brian to the victim of his one of his fathers. He was like, oh, you tempted him. You were, you were lustful uh. after him. 
Yeah, no. And let me tell you, looking at Brian's father, no one's less full after him. No. No. Nope. Much less a kid. Um, the all, all slick oil people, but yeah, so Brian, so Carl though, got, um, he was in Florida working for an advertising agency. And since the documentary has come out, we found out he has been hired in a non pastoral capacity by, um, a per, by mostly a church of color. Um, I think in Oklahoma. Wow. Mm -hmm. What do we think about that? I have no comment. Because look, it, uh, you don't know what's going to happen until you see what happens, right? Like, mm, okay, right. That, that, I mean, on the surface, that could be good, but it what depends on is he going to fall back into old patterns? Um, I mean, I think it's just really dangerous. As you know, uh, I, I I've been on staff at churches and I've seen you know the way there is a bit of that kind of if you're not healthy, let's put it this way: if you're not someone who's healthy emotionally. Being a pastor of a church of any size puts you on a pedestal, um, creates this kind of celebrity mentality, if nothing else in you, if not in the people. Um, and I just know from my own experiences, like there were situations when I was on staff at churches that were not healthy for me. And then I had to recognize like, yeah, this isn't good for me. I don't want to be a part of this whole thing. This kind of like, to me, it was like a you know, it was like a show. It was a sermon and a song. It was a TED talk and a worship con you know, concert. And it was like, yeah, at least for me, I, that wasn't a healthy thing. And um, so as long as, you know, Carl has really learned a lot of things and is going to really fight for that humility and, and avoid those kinds of things in the past that have tripped him up, then it could be great. It could be awesome. Uh, but I'm, I would hold, <laughs> I withhold judgment until I see how things really work yeah. out. So speaking of people and and lack of accountability, um, did a little bit of poking around about Brian Houston post-documentary, because this came out when the lawsuits were about to come out. Um, and, and the lawsuits were that... They, some oh, yeah, of them right. were related to financial mismanagement. Most of them were related to him hiding... Um, the, the sexual assaults yeah. of children by his father, yeah. uh, whether he knew about that. And uh, the Australian government decided he did not know enough um, to have been responsible for hiding that information, that those verdicts came down in September. But here's my favorite part of the story. Uh, as of last week, Brian Houston is uh, demanding that the government cover his legal fees. The, the sheer audacity. And so I want to evoke uh, wow. one of my favorite lines from the church trauma series. Fuck Brian Houston. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. As a concern, I'm going to say something that's probably in this forum or into our listeners might be a little controversial. Uh, I don't know. But um, as it concerns Carl Lentz working with uh, Transformation Church and Todd, uh, Pastor Todd out there, I, he has a great, he has an awesome ministry. I don't follow his ministry closely, but whenever I do come across his his uh, material, his content, it is encouraging and empowering. Um, this may be a little bit controversial. Apparently, Carl Lentz is anointed to reach people. Now, don't nobody shoot me down for saying that. It take just like Beyonce, just like 
T.D. Jakes, just like uh, I'm not going to throw that orange demon out there, but hmm. he has charisma. He has a, uh, hmm. what is that movie where he says, I have a certain set of skills. Yeah, <laughs> He's yeah, going yeah. to get his daughter or whatever. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Apparently he has a combination of characteristics mm-hmm. that uniquely draws people to him because and this is just my own personal belief. So, you know, don't nobody come for me because he's created by God. I make the assumption that those talents and those characteristics and that ability that he has comes from God. That is just my thought. Mm-hmm. Just like I am a teacher. I I believe I have the gift of spoken word. And because I believe God created me, I believe God gave me that gift. With that said, if this is a person who has taken his walk with God seriously, who has is is doing the hard work, the soul work to restore himself. If this is a person who is focused on healing others and not hurting others, if this is someone who has, if we want to use a biblical scripture, turn from his wicked ways, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If this is someone who is determined to be a better man than he was before. It could only help that church that he is there. Mm. Now I gave you about 20 ifs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he could be the person who is yeah. the, the wolf in sheep's clothing too. I didn't pick that up from mm-hmm. watching him. Okay. Right, yeah. But mm-hmm. what I will say no. is that you don't amass hundreds of thousands of young people to you celebrities to you and all that stuff that he did. You don't do that without a certain measure of talent for that mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. anointing for that thing, gift or calling, if you want to use that word for that thing. If it was the case, anybody could do it and not anybody could do it and not everybody can do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. So my thing is, if he is becoming the person that he had proclaimed to be all those years back, if that's the person he's intentionally becoming now, I don't have any problem with him doing anything where the mm-hmm. kingdom is concerned. And I use that word kingdom, you know, take that how you want to take it. My only issue is if there were sexual coercion. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think anyone that committed rape should be hired by a church. Yeah. That's uh, I figure consensual can be, yeah. And so that's, but that's, that's the question mark in the room, right? Like, yeah. you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in, in redemption and transformation. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. A thousand percent. Um, and Whether little gifts can be used for good or bad. In church culture. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's also, you know, I, I agree with the thing about, you know, what you said, um, December. Like, I, I, I mean, I could name two people off the top of my head that I are very good friends with who were pastors who had that gift you're talking about, man. They, they had it. You know, and that was unmistakable. You got the gift. But how you can't you imagine it? these people doing anything other than that. But both of them, had very similar failures like Carl and Brian. And I mean, they had spectacular failures and, um, and both of them, I believe have gone through their healing process in very good and healthy ways. Um, and I love them. They're my friends, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm on their team. I'm, I want to believe the best for them. Um, but I think they would even say, and they both told me like they understand there's, there are healthy ways for them you know, I think you have to go through that healing process, right? And you have to be so self-aware. And both of my friends I'm talking about are very self-aware. They were very aware. They can step back from the train wreck that they made of their life, their ministry, their family, their marriages, their relationship with their kids. Like they they, they blew it up. And, 
you know, and now they're rebuilding it. They're rebuilding themselves. They're rebuilding their relationship with their kids. Uh, they're focused on what matters, right? And as long as you can find a healthy way, I mean, I, of course, you know, you don't want anyone to to not be who they are, right? You can't, you can't yeah. help it. This is who you are. But there's a healthy way to do it. You know, there's a way to do it that really is helping other people. That's putting them first, their needs first, rather than your unmet emotional needs, you know, and that kind of thing. And you have to be super self-aware of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I, absolutely. I believe with you. I, 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 I believe it is very possible if all of those ifs that you mentioned, um, you know, we check all those boxes, then absolutely. Uh, but it's just, it's really a challenge. And I think a lot of people go, they jump back into the pulpit or the spotlight too quickly yes, before they've absolutely. really dealt with that, you know, all, and owned all that stuff. Owning it is the hard part. Big time, yeah, yeah. Brian, what did you say? Fuck Brian Houston. Mm-hmm. He the one. He hasn't owned that. You can no, tell he, he hasn't has owned it by him asking the government, yeah, to, to pay, pay his legal fees. Why don't yep. you take ownership of that, like you took ownership of paying to hush some women up? That you, yep. Yeah. Yep. you know, because you didn't want the church to have to bur- have to carry that burden. You shouldn't want the government to have to carry this burden. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Amen to that. <laughs> that part. <laughs> I didn't know such crazy evangelicalism and like Pentecostalism oh, yeah. and all oh, no, in Australia. Like, it's, it's super all conservative the there. Yeah. It's all yeah. over. Yeah. So yeah. newsflash. Scary. They got snakes, big snakes, spiders, and <laughs> everything that can kill you, the most deadly, everything in the world, <laughs> the deadliest snake, the deadliest fish, the deadliest spider, the deadliest reptile. Like it's all in Australia. It's the deadliest Yes. And next to all that is a picture of Brian Houston. <laughs> and the, yes, <laughs> the deadliest megapath. The deadliest evangelical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. There's a long list of There's those. a lot of them. There's <laughs> a lot. Serious. <laughs> Listen, thank you everyone for listening. Again, I'm glad to be back. And I want to invite you, if you have not already, to check us out on Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash heretic happy hour and go ahead and subscribe, you know, give us a little couple of dollars. And, you know, for that, we give y'all a little few little extras, a little, little couple little trims, you know, that, that, that Patreon is like the, um, the crunchy corner of the macaroni and cheese at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Ooh, you know yum. what I'm saying? Yes. It's the, it's the corner piece. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's the peach cobbler that got the good, the good crust on it. With all where all the butter and the sugar and the cinnamon done pulled up in the corner, that's what it is. You just need to go on and get your buttery sugar cheesy corner. (laughs) That is Patreon.com/slash Heritage Happy Hour. Go on and subscribe to that. Help us out. That's delightful. Um, And then post post picture of your cheesy corner on our in our Facebook group. Uh, This Facebook group is called Heresy After Hours. It's for everyone who is in any kind of phase of deconstructing, reconstructing, everything and all in between. And I would really love it if you've made it this far in the podcast, you're still listening because like you can't reach the button in your car to fast forward past the credits. Don't worry. We try to make this fun for you. But I want you to come to Heresy After Hours and write, fuck Brian Houston. And, like join oh us. Gosh, I want to see how many of, many of you are really get? listening. How no many context. can we get? No context. No context. With no context. Just yeah, just post it. You, you can put F asterisk 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 if you want. That's right. But you don't have to. We won't, we won't judge. No, you, but don't you don't have, have to. to. For our conservative I heretics. It. I love yes. it. So, yes. 
So if you were not able earlier on to rate and review us, we're going to ask your help because we're at 323 reviews on Apple Podcasts and we want you to get us to half Satan, get us up to 333. um, And we will be so grateful. It is how people like you find people like us. Great. Wouldn't it be ironic if one of those killer spiders in Australia bit Ryan Houston? Wouldn't that be? <laughs> or maybe he was swimming and. Yes, killing evangelicals versus killer spiders. Or shark. They're, they are apocalyptic, so is Brian.